my wife asked me, what would you regret on your deathbed never having done? And I said, writing a book and getting it published. And she said, fine, when we get back home, you need to start taking two hours a day, protected time and make that happen. So now that I've done that, uh, it's empowered me. That was the, really the big thing. I, I, I really believe that that which we're most afraid of, we are likely most destined to do in life. And there's this weird thing where we kind of talk ourselves out of the thing. We we make excuses for why we shouldn't go after that thing we really want. So for me, it was being a thriller novelist. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you? I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, leaders, and people looking for high performance in business and in life. Now, each week, I sit down with one of the world's most successful people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, mindsets, and habits that help them get there. Now, it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. And if you want access to over 300 episodes and insights with game changers and change makers, head to whatgotyouthere.com, where you can also subscribe to my Momentum Monday newsletter. Hey guys, it's Sean, and I have an action-packed episode for you today with one of my all-time favorite authors, and that's the thriller writer Brad Thor. Now, Brad is a 22-time New York Times bestselling author, and his new book, Deadfall, is out now. On this episode, we are going to dive into Brad's get-after-it attitude, why being asked what he would regret having not done on his deathbed was one of the sparks that got him writing, and we dive deep into his writing process and how he's continued to evolve both his books and himself after decades. Please enjoy this episode with Brad Thor. Hey guys, it's Sean, and I'm wondering, have you been looking for a new book to read? If so, get excited because my new book, Masterpiece in Progress, A Daily Guide to a Life Well-Crafted, is coming out on October 10th, but you can pre-order your Kindle version today. This book is your one-stop guide for daily inspiration and practical wisdom. You see, I've compiled 365 of the most powerful messages designed to inspire and help you make meaningful progress in your life. That's 365 opportunities to become a better you. Don't wait. Pre-order your copy today on Amazon and be among the first to start crafting your own masterpiece of a life. Trust me, you won't want to miss this. And if you don't believe me, then listen to what other people are saying. Frank Slootman, the CEO of Snowflake Inc., said it is a masterclass in personal development. Former Navy SEAL and Bronze Star Medal with Valor recipient Michael Burns said, it is a roadmap to all who aim to conquer their personal and professional battles. And Dr. Tara Swart, a neuroscientist and senior lecturer at MIT said, reading it is like undergoing a transformation. So head to masterpieceinprogressbook.com to pre-order your Kindle today. And remember, it comes out on October 10th. Brad, welcome back to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Uh, it's good to be here. I'm great. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's, it's always exciting. It's always a pleasure to get to talk to you. But I would love to fast forward here to the end of the, your life. You're on your deathbed. What would you regret having not done? Yeah, so this is good. So uh, this is my new practice inside stoicism. Each night is, that's the last day you lived. And then each morning you've been given a bonus day. That's kind of a practice in stoicism to go to bed thinking that's it. Did I did I do what I could? Did I impact the people I care about the most? Did I exert uh, my influence uh, for good? And did I achieve the most I was capable of achieving by challenging myself on a daily basis? So this is this is really interesting because this is my new stoic practice. Um, 
Gosh, that's a good question. Being an author was the one, I mean, on my honeymoon, my wife asked me, what would you regret on your deathbed never having done? And I said, writing a book and getting it published. And she said, fine, when we get back home, you need to start taking two hours a day, protected time and make that happen. So now that I've done that, uh, it's empowered me. That was the really the big thing. I, I, I really believe that that which we're most afraid of, we are likely most destined to do in life. And there's just weird thing where we kind of talk ourselves out of the thing. We we make excuses for why we shouldn't go after that thing we really want. So for me, it was being a thriller novelist. Uh, I got to tell you, at this point, everything, I mean, I've got a billion irons in the fire in Hollywood and we're on pause because of the writer strike. That is another area that I wanted to conquer. Uh, so yeah, if I went to bed tonight and didn't wake up tomorrow, there would not be, there would not be anything that I regret. So I hope that to go back and answer your question, I hope that holds to the end of my career, that I write the kind of books I want to write. I go after the particular business opportunities I want to write. But there's nothing, believe it or not, there's nothing that's that pressing that I haven't been making steps towards achieving. Talk to me about, about those fears. It reminds me of the Joseph Campbell quote, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure that you seek. I'm wondering that's how you think about quote. those fears and how you go towards those. My mind, uh, when I graduated college, I had saved a bunch of money working in college and I had a friend who had an apartment uh, with an extra room overseas. And I thought, okay, I really want to write a book and I'm going to go over. She said, hey, you can have this room. So I went over figuring I'll unplug when I, we weren't plugged in when I graduated from college. I mean, we weren't doing the internet or anything like that back in the early 90s. But so I went and I started writing a book. I'd always wanted to write a book and I got a couple chapters into it. And then I started hearing this voice in the back of my head that I think we all have that was saying, ooh, you really want to risk the embarrassment on this? Writing a book's a big deal. What if it sucks? What if nobody wants to buy it? You know, you write a book, uh, you don't get it published, blah, 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 blah. And I ended up succumbing to that voice and shipping my laptop back home. I traveled in Europe with a backpack, came up with an idea for a TV show called Traveling Lights that I returned to the United States and eventually uh, got uh, public television to agree to pick it up. And I made these shows. Uh, but that was avoidance behavior for me. I mean, it was so hard to be a television producer and a host and a writer and to go out and find sponsors for my programs. I was constantly grinding, constantly hustling. <laughs> that hasn't changed. I think that's part of my personality. I still, with the books and everything else, grind and hustle on a daily basis. But so I was doing this TV show as avoidance behavior, running away from what I really wanted to do, which was to write the books. And now we're back to that moment. I'd done a couple of seasons of my travel show was really successful. Uh, and that's why I went on my honeymoon. And that's when my wife asked me the question about deathbed. And I said, writing books and getting them published. But I really do believe, so back to that Campbell quote, you know, I really do believe in my quote is that which we're most destined to do, we're often most afraid of. So by having my wife, you know, I'm newly married. I've told my wife my deepest, darkest secret. There's no way I can chicken out now. I can't make my wife think, you know, who did I marry? You know, this guy's not going to even go after his dreams. So it was a good push. It was good having not only somebody who was supportive, but somebody, she didn't ask me page count and all that kind of stuff, but there was another person in my home mm -hmm. to whom I was accountable. You know, I couldn't just sit there and watch Sports Center for two hours yeah. a day. She's going to know, right? <laughs> I had to be on the, I had to be on the, on the computer. So I'm actually really proud of the fact, like if somebody watches this, you know, a week after I die or a year after I die. And I'm able to say, you know what? I'm pretty sure I'm going to get to that moment on my deathbed. And there's not going to be anything that I've wanted to do that I haven't done. I think at some point I will probably, uh, depending on 
it, depending on the nature of the country, I think at some point I would like to uh, get into a life of public service. I think at some point I'll transition, maybe, you know, maybe in my 60s or something like that, I might want to run for office. But it's going to depend on how the, not how the world works, but how the country looks at that point. Mm -hmm. But at this point, no, there's, there's nothing I can think of right now that I'm not chasing that I'll regret not having chased. Just planting the seed. I love it. Brad, talk me back to that voice in your head. You said earlier you used to come do it and you let that voice take over. When you hear that voice now, you know, those fears creep in, those doubts creep in. Oh, yeah. What is the internal dialogue like for you? How do you overcome it? It, it makes me think of, uh, I've been revisiting some of uh, the books on Theodore Roosevelt and his dad had this mm -hmm. line that he adopted, get action. And it was basically like, let's mm -hmm. go forward motion at all times. I'm just wondering how you overcome that voice. Yeah, you know, it's really, it's really funny. So there is a, uh, the precursor to the Central Intelligence Agency uh, in World War II was called the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. And it was run by a, a, an amazing, amazing guy named uh, uh, William Wild Bill Donovan. And he had one maxim for the people who worked with him in the OSS. And that was, if you fall, fall forward in service of the mission. So there's a lot of, so as a writer, when I get that voice in my head, when writers get that voice and it's starting to mess with them, you know, in golf, they call it the yips where you, you're, you're, you're not getting your putts correctly. You're kind of, you're just, everything seems to be screwed up. I, I joke that God doesn't reach down and take the talent away from Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods gets in his own way, right? With his brain. And he's just, he's allowing those, those voices to get the better of him and all this stuff. Normally, when you see that happen with writers, it is, it'll result in writer's block. And what's very, very funny is most of the writers that I know, most of the working writers tend to be perfectionists. And so that's where the voices really get a hold of you because, wow, what if you're making a mistake here? What if this isn't the plot you should be doing in this book? What if you should be doing this, should be doing that? It is a really self-destructive voice and it can paralyze. There are writers that have become paralyzed and have never written another word again. Uh, the best piece of advice that I ever read about writer's block, and this will go deeper into how I try to control those voices, uh, the best piece of advice I ever read was give yourself permission to write a crummy first draft. And that's a great, great, it's freeing. <clears throat> Excuse me, it actually silences the voice to a certain degree. The voice can say whatever it wants, but it's like I'm giving myself permission. You can't edit what hasn't been written, mm. okay? So you have to be comfortable with, I'm just gonna get it on the page and I can fix it later. You can't, I mean, a blank page, you can't edit that. And so it really is having the discipline to sit in front of that computer and open up the tap. There's another line that says, the water doesn't flow if the tap isn't open. Mm. And to open your tap, you have to be where you do your work. So for me, it's in front of a screen uh, with my keyboard. So it, it, it is not always easy to combat that voice. I know in my own writing, I'm constantly trying to get better with every book. And you're never going to be able to get me to stop doing that. It's just in my nature. My dad was a Marine. My mom was an entrepreneur. And I was raised, if you're going to be a broom pusher, be the best damn broom pu pusher there ever was. Hey, listeners, are you ready to start making daily strides towards crafting the life you've always dreamed of? If so, I've got something special just for you. My upcoming book, Masterpiece in Progress, A Daily Guide to a Life Well-Crafted, is releasing on October 10th, and it's your ticket to a life of purpose, inspiration, and personal fulfillment. Imagine waking up every day to a potent passage designed to set your mind on fire and guide you towards personal and professional evolution. With 365 motivational insights, this book is your daily dose of wisdom to get your gears turning. 
So why wait? You can pre-order Masterpiece in Progress on Amazon right now and kickstart your journey to a life that's not just good, but a masterpiece. Don't miss out. The countdown begins now. Head to masterpieceinprogressbook.com to pre-order your Kindle today. And remember, all versions come out on October 10th. And don't ever take the people who sign your paycheck for granted. Do a great job. Be the indispensable broom pusher. Be the person that they realize they can't live without. And as I may have said with you uh, in one of our previous discussions, Sean, I don't work for the publisher. I work for the readers. So the people who read my books are my employers, and I want to get better for them. I want to bring them a better product every year. Um, there's a reviewer out there, and he pays me practically annually the greatest compliment. He goes, I, I don't know how this guy does it. He said, by this, this time in Clancy's career, the books had dropped out. Like, he'll list a bunch of people. They'll say, I can't believe Brad's got 23 books, and each one gets better than the last. Well, there's an old saying, which is easy reading is damn hard writing. And that's definitely true with me. So yeah, I get that voice. It flares up. I, you know, it's there. And I particularly find that the voice is there when I'm pushing in the areas in which I'm not comfortable. Mm-hmm. So if I'm trying to stretch myself, if I'm trying to go into places with my books, I did this a few books ago and I took a huge flyer. My book, Backlash, I had my hero actually survive. He got grabbed by an enemy team that was going to take him to their own version of a black site. And the plane that they're trying to get him the last leg of the journey in crashes. It's very inhospitable, cold weather area. And he's alone. And most of the book, he's alone. I've never done that before. Mm -hmm. He's always had dialogue with other people. So this book, he had to have an internal dialogue. He had, had to be, what is his mindset like as he's trying to make it to safety? He's got to get to the border of the, between Russia and Finland and get across into Finland. And if he doesn't, he's dead. So it was nerve wracking for me. And I just had to keep telling that voice, you know what? I got to do this. I got to get this out. I've got to get it on paper. And I had to keep kind of tamping that voice down. Well, what ended up happening is it became a favorite book. My readers mm. loved it. They hadn't read anything like it before from me. And so- the voice gets stronger the more I get into territory that's unfamiliar. That happened on this book with Deadfall. And, uh, but the reviews have been fantastic. I have people saying this book is their absolute favorite. It's the best thing I've ever written. So what I'm learning, particularly with Backlash and with the most recent book, Deadfall, is that when I go into areas I feel I don't belong, that seems to be where I find the greatest reward, right? The treasure is in buried in your backyard, the treasure's buried in North Africa mm-hmm. or Patagonia, or it's up at the North Pole. You're, it's going to be uncomfortable to get there. You know, if you're not working hard, if you're not a little bit nervous, a little bit scared about where you're going to get what you know you have to get, you're probably digging in the wrong place. Hmm. It's funny. You were saying one of the most liberating things you, th- you learned was writing that bad chapter is okay. You just got to get it down on paper. And Jack Carr, who's been a previous guest, he was saying that advice that you gave him about writing a crummy chapter has liberated him. And it was really helpful, especially early on in his career. Um, this, this has me so intrigued about just your overall process and the idea generation and where you come up with these ideas. I recently came across a line from James Cameron, the movie producer, and he's like, I'm basically dreaming up ideas all day. There's a constant movie going on. For you, what is that process like? where you go from blank slate to idea. How does that usually happen for you? So it's interesting. Um, 
two, two very successful authors have written books about writing, Stephen King and David Morrell. And David Morrell created Rambo. He's written a ton of thrillers. If you ever get a chance to get David Morrell on the program, he is he started the International Thriller Writers Organization. I mean, he's a writer's writer. He's taught everywhere. He's just brilliant. It's super, super successful. Um, he, Stephen King said, write what you love to read because that's where your passion is. And I tell people uh, that not only is your passion there, but you've got a mini PhD in that genre mm. because you've read so many books. So you know why you like certain authors, why you don't like other authors. Well, this author who I love did five books and I didn't like number three and this is why. So I tell people that they, uh, Tony Robbins has an old uh, quote. Uh, when I when I went overseas to school, my mom had worked for a company called Nightingale Conant and they did uh, business books on tape. And I was able to pick two that I could take with me. And one was on negotiating and the other was at Tony Robbins uh, cassette course. And so I lived in a tiny room in an attic of this French family and I didn't have a television set. And I listened to these tapes over and over. One of the things I remembered from Tony Robbins was success leaves clues. Mm -hmm. If you sow the same seeds, you'll reap the same rewards. Now, it's not actually apples to apples. It's just sow those seeds, you're going to reap rewards. So what's interesting for me to go back to King is I have a lot of rules on what I do because my books take place in a, I write fiction, they're thrillers, but they take place in a world that readers understand and know, right? So there's no laser guns. The CIA guys don't carry laser guns. Navy SEALs are not dropping out of spaceships, you know, they're coming out of a helicopter or they're going to halo or hey-ho jump in all this kind of stuff. And they're going to have their either carrying a Glock or an H and K, you know, so I have to, I have to kind of conform to a certain amount of rules with my writing. And I joke uh, that uh, it would be interesting to be a fly on the wall for Stephen, uh, when Stephen King writes and to be able to see inside his mind because he gets to make up his rules, right? Mm -hmm. To a greater or lesser degree. Doesn't mean his books are easier to write than mine are. I think all writers have their own things. But, you know, he's putting dead cats in a cemetery where they come back to life. I can't do that. I can't put a dead dictator in the ground and he pops back up. So to get back to your question, uh, I consume a lot of news. I'm a voracious consumer of news. And I look at things happening at the wor in the world and I say, well, what if this is the answer to this? Not conspiratorially, but what if it was actually this? What if it was the opposite? I like to play what I call the opposite game. What if what we believe was the goal here or what we believe the outcome was, was actually the opposite. And that's given me a lot of plot ideas. But because my things are international thrillers and they deal with government and spies and all that kind of stuff, it's oftentimes things I see in the news that'll pop something for me, uh, which the last year, as I've been looking for next summer's book, has been really difficult because I was writing about Ukraine uh, I wanted to do a thriller. I love Saving Private Ryan. I love Band of Brothers. I love Fury with Brad Pitt. Even Monuments Men. There's an element of that. Uh, John Goodman and George Clooney in this new book with the arts that's been uh, stolen in Ukraine as kind of a little subplot in in this thriller of rescuing an American citizen who's caught behind enemy lines. Um, I'm doing this book. I've always wanted to write one of these books like this because I love those World War II movies. And I thought this is a great way to take my contemporary character and put him in a war setting in Europe and allow that to be the backdrop. And it's a it's a it's an idea. It's something I've wanted to do for for decades. And I finally got to do it. But what's funny is, is I still scan the news all year long, even when I'm writing, because I'm looking for next year's idea. And my editor was saying to me at one point, she goes, 
So what's going on? I said, the world has been incredibly boring this last year. You know, I can't find that thing. And now I found something. Uh, but it was weird because it was so much like focus on Ukraine and then focus on domestic stuff here in the United States. There there were a handful of things, but nothing nothing that gave me that real kick, that real spark. You know, it's it's like that old joke about what's the definition of pornography? Well, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it, you know? And so for me, what what makes for a great Brad Thor idea, it's nor, like I said, it's a geopolitical item that exists in the real world that I spin into my book. And so I, I know it when I see it. Uh, last summer's book, uh, I'd read this incredible article a couple of years before. So last summer's book was called Rising Tiger. And I based it on an article, a real life thing. Uh, there is this, the border bet between China and India up in the Himalayas is called the line of actual control. And you're not allowed to have firearms up there and you're not allowed to have explosives. There's a lot of skirmishes back and forth between Chinese troops and Indian troops. Well, a couple of summers ago, uh, in the, under the dark of night, a bunch of Chinese troops crept across the border into India with homemade weapons. <clears throat> Excuse me. It looked like stuff out of Walking Dead. They had baseball bats wrapped with barbed wire. They had iron bars studded with spikes that they had made. And they came down and they attacked this contingent of uh, Indian troops. And the, the melee was like something out of the Middle Ages. It lasted for six hours. They were throwing people off thousand foot cliffs. It was terrible. The Indians won, the Chinese lost, uh, and they needed D DNA specialists to recognize some of the bodies. I mean, it was horrific. It was something out of just a terrible, terrible movie. And this gave me an idea for last summer's book. I said, that's really fascinating. And I started digging into all the tension between India and China. And I said, ah, here's what's interesting. What if India is the world's largest democracy and the United States is the world's oldest? India really makes for a natural partner for us. And they've had a longstanding relationship with the Russians. I'd love to see us kind of chop that off and, and be their best buddy, be their best friend. And I said, what if secretly we were trying to create an Asian version mm -hmm. of NATO? And so we had uh, an ex-CIA State Department guy that was quietly going to a handful of these countries like uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Japan, India, and we wanted to put India at the center of it. What might the Chinese do to make sure this never happened? Well, they'd start by killing that guy. And then my top spy would get sent in. So that's that's how I get my ideas hmm. for the books. And so I've been kind of casting about looking for one. And I found a really, really cool next year when you and I talk, yeah. I'll be able to say, all right, I was hinting at it. I didn't want to reveal it too soon. But this was the thing that I found that I thought was so cool as a kickoff for the next book. Well, speaking of that idea, we don't need to dive into the idea at all, but you're sitting there, you're having a bourbon. What are next steps, right? Like the idea hits, you know it when you see it. And I'm just wondering those next steps. It makes me think about the author of The Gentleman in Moscow, Amor Towels. And he spends mm -hmm. three or four years just visualizing it in his head. And I know you don't have- That's a nice luxury. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> nice that Amor could sit for three or four years <laughs> yeah. and kick it in his head. No, yeah, I right. can't do that. I'm under contract for a book a year. So, which is achievable, does not hurt the quality of the books. But when I get that idea, if I get, if I get, you know, it's like the tuning fork going off. If I can feel it resonating inside me, then what I need to do is, uh, you know, I'll start. I'm not an outliner. I'm definitely very organic. They call people who don't outline pantsers. They do it by the seat of their pants. I'm not going to tell the story what it's going to be. That's what happens with an outline. You're telling the story. This is what you're going to be. When you're a pantser, the story tells you what it's going to be. And I much prefer that. I want to have the experience writing the book that you're going to have reading it. 
So there are all those nights where I've painted myself into a corner and my joke is, and I've probably said it to you before, that I go home and my wife can tell if it's a red wine, red wine night or a bourbon night just based on the expression <laughs> on my face. And she always says, okay, you're, you've hit a rough, you don't know how you're going to figure this out. You'll figure it out tomorrow when you get in front of the computer. And it's just that seat of pants to seat a chair and, and just sitting there until something pops. There's a good rule of thumb in my business, which is, okay, this just happened and you don't know how you're going to get your character out of it. So you come up with four ideas and you throw them all out. You throw the first four out because if you can think of those that quick, those first four, probably the readers can too. <laughs> so you want to start looking at five or six because then the readers will be surprised. So uh, Robert Frost once said, no surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader, no joy in the writer, no joy in the reader, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. So I really believe that. I, If I'm not experiencing surprise, shock, joy, sadness, for these characters, the reader's not going to either. This is the written word is like a cable that's plugged in between the writer and the reader. And I am transmitting experience and emotion and all that kind of stuff. And I want your heart, I want my heart to pump as hard as yours is going to when you read it. So, uh, so I'll throw out the first four ideas. Uh, and I'll often I've got my network of contacts and stuff, and I'll ping them and I'll say, if it was you, what would you what would you do? to get this operation off the ground or this thing introduced that you wanted introduced uh, to kind of tilt things a certain way in a different part of the world, what would you do? And then what would you be worried the worst possible outcome for this thing would be? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of cool. And so that what that does is like, here's, here's how you'd get it started. This is the worst thing that could happen. Now I've got goalposts in the end zone, mm. right? So I'm now operating, I know the field of play to a certain degree. And I know I've really got it if I have more than one person give me the same one or two goalposts. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So that kind of frames it for me. And I could, I, listen, Amor Tolls is a fabulous writer, uh, a woman who works for me. She's like his number one fan. I think she's going to Kathy Bates him like in, uh, uh, in that great Stephen King movie with James Caan. You know, she's going to hobble him and she's going to hide him away in a cabin. Uh, that notwithstanding. Uh, listen, Michener wrote a book every 10 years and they were these thick, thick books and he really did great research and stuff. Um, you know, some writers do that. You only hear from them every once in a while and stuff, but I'm a, I'm a guy you can plan your vacation around. I'm as, I'm as reliable as, you know, the sun setting, the sun rising, you're going to get a book a year from me. And it, while you're not seeing me outside of me popping up on social media, what you know about me as a writer you can trust is that I'm working harder to get better at my craft. I still read books about writing. I'm reading in between publishing books that how do I do better character development? How do I do better plot twists? I, I love my job because I can constantly get better. It's not required of me. It's not like, you know, doctors have to go do continuing medical education or you're an attorney and you have to do continuing legal education. But I believe that that is important. Again, I want to be the best broom pusher, the best book writer. And that's that's what I do to make that happen. And it could be just tiny like jeweler's screwdriver twists uh, of, of tightening of certain screws in the way that I write. And the reader might not notice it. And that's OK. What they do notice is, wow, I got another great thriller from Brad. He never slows down. He never phones it in. And as I have said from the beginning, not only do I work for these people, but if you're a reader, Sean, of my books, okay, hardcover's not cheap. It's 30 bucks. An ebook is 15 bucks. You know, you could go out and make that money up. 
you know, you can go work a little extra at work, whatever. You'll make, you can find a way to make more money. What you can't make more of is your time. It's the most finite commodity you have. So if you're going to entrust me with your most precious commodity, your time, it's incumbent upon me to give you the absolute best white knuckle throw ride that I'm capable of. So that pressure adds to the voice in the back of my head. You know, is this good enough? People are going to like this, you know? So I, I, to a certain degree, suffer under that whip pan, just cracking all year long. But I think it's what helps make the books as good as they are. I, I, I'm very proud. I would not go back and change anything in any of the books. I'm proud of them. I write and I write. There's never a placeholder, right? So I get to the end of my week and I don't feel like oh, I got to go back to that stuff from Tuesday. It's not good enough. I won't move from the stuff I'm working on Tuesday, even if it takes me till Saturday until it's as good as I think I can get it. So when I finish that first draft, I'm very confident this is a great book. Hmm. You talk about that suffering. The uh, the root word of passion is patty, which is to suffer. And mm. just that that grind that you put it through. And you and I first originally got connected because I've been a fan since day one of all your books. And I love the approach. I love the craft. And you once said to me, you said, Sean, I have a get after it attitude in my DNA. And, and so I'm wondering now, as more things come on your plate, right? Like with Hollywood and all of these different balancing and juggling acts, how do you continue to maintain this level of quality? Not only maintain it, but evolve throughout that process with just so many things up in the air. So it's interesting. So I'm, I, I've been working on a, with a couple of great writers in Hollywood. Now the strike is at the point where, you know, like everybody's paused and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, it, probably the biggest, the, the greatest lesson that has come my way, because I'm a perfectionist. Uh, you know, I'm a natural born salesman to a certain degree. And I've always believed that people buy from people they like, you know, so that's you're, you're developing a bond. So my readers, this community, I talk to them throughout the year. We communicate, we keep going. I've got this, I've got this, uh, get after it part of my DNA. My parents both being entrepreneurs. Uh, my dad went to college on the GI bill after the Marine Corps. He's been a very successful entrepreneur. My mom was too. So I once heard somebody and it's killing me that I'm not going to be able to attribute it properly. Okay. But it, it, I'd always heard you are going to have a greater level of peace, prosperity, and just overall health if you can say one word. And that word is no. No is a complete <laughs> sentence. So for someone with my makeup, it it was always difficult to say no. You know, how about this interview? Or, hey, can you can you come to this charity event? Can you do this? I mean, they're all great things and I want to do all of them. And uh, so you get to the point where you have so many uh, lovely requests that you have to you have to triage. You have to do what you can do. And so what I heard one person say is he said, your life is like a raised planting bed. OK, so you've got this planting bed in your garden and you can only tend to so many things in the garden. So you got to water it and da, 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 da. And he said, every time you say yes, the planting bed gets longer and more things are then planted in this raised planting bed. Now you have to hustle back and forth, watering everything. You get done watering at this end and it's already time. You're already late to get back to the other end and water. And I never thought about it in, in those ways. So the other thing is, is that you can say no, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's over. It can be no, not right now. It can be no, is there another way we can do this? Like, hey, I'd really like to be involved with this, but I cannot get on a plane 
and fly to wherever, you know, a four hour flight to do this event. But is there another way I can participate? Can I do, you know, I just, I have a conflict on that day. Can I, can I shoot a video and the video can be shown there? Or can we do something else? So there's many ways to skin the cat, but until you get to the point where you're comfortable politely saying no, I think a lot of people don't like no because they're afraid it sounds aggressive or mean or whatever. But you do have to be able to say that uh, because there are certain people you owe your yeses to. And I owe my yeses first and foremost to my readers in my business career. Everything else comes secondary. The people that I work hardest for all year long are my employers, the readers. So yeah, I'm trying to, be, to hustle and get TV shows and movies and all this stuff going in Hollywood, but that stuff never will come before the readers. So that's always a guaranteed yes for my readers. And then everything else is, okay, will this impact my, uh, it's so the woman I told you who's going to eventually kidnap, I shouldn't even joke about kidnapping Amor Tolls, but she's brilliant. She's brilliant. Her name is Yvonne. And Yvonne, we talk a lot about uh, the founder of Southwest Airlines and how he always said with any decision they were looking at at the company, does this make us the low cost airlines? And that's an interesting thing to say, no matter what it was. It's like, okay, we're going to change the uniform of the flight attendants, or we're going to offer pretzels now instead of peanuts, or should we offer meals? It always came back to, does this make us the low-cost airlines? And that was that was his thing, is that he ran through that kind of, that was the decision matrix. It's like, if it didn't pass that first test, it didn't go on. So that that becomes part of what I do here is, is this going to help me write the best book possible and reach as many readers as possible. So I love my readers and I want to, as a business person, I want to expand that base, right? So that becomes hard. You get opportunities. It's like, okay, here's this podcast. It's growing real fast. It's got a great listenership. Okay, that one makes sense. Here's this other one that's only been around for a few months, but the host is, she's really dynamic and she's a real go-getter and, you know, she's going places and she's got a, she's got a very niche audience, you know, and so you kind of look at that and say, all right, listen, I've got one slot. Yeah, let's give it a try. Let's see what happens. But again, being able to say no and move on is, is a very healthy thing, not only mentally for you as a person, but also as a business professional to be able to do that. And again, politely. And then, you know, sometimes it's, you know, it's a negotiation, right? I always, I always learned that no was a very interesting place to begin a negotiation. Well, so Yeah, well, you just, said you had the negotiation tape and the Tony Robbins tape. Yeah. Yeah. So positivity and, and how to, how to close, how to close deals. And yeah. And I mean, that's a big part of negotiating, right? It's, you're going to be a successful business person. If you can identify the needs of the person that you're approaching and explain how your, what you're offering them actually fits those needs, you know, hire me, I'm going to take something off your plate is a, is a great proposition for someone who's busy, who's trying to grow their business and all that kind of stuff. So that that I think is a is uh, probably one of the biggest lessons I learned from those uh, those tapes when I lived abroad all those years ago. Yeah, Brad, you've been mentioning just getting better, constantly improving. You mentioned Tony Robbins twenty plus years ago. At the start of this call, you said you've recently gotten into stoicism. Talk to me yeah. about that. I'm wondering how that came across your desk. So stoicism, I had started getting attracted to stoicism, and then COVID hit, and I said, okay, this is going to be a great time to practice stoicism. I grew up with my mom giving me a line, like it's uh, it's burned into that magnetic tape in my head that was developed when I was a child. And I didn't know that it was the essence of stoicism. 
My mom used to always, like a broken record, I'd be like, stop, I don't want to hear it again. Just a gajillion times I heard it growing up, which is you can't always choose the situation you find yourself in, but you can choose how you're going to react to it. Mm -hmm. And that is just the essence of stoicism, that there's all these things outside your control, but what you do control is your interpretation of events and what value, if any, you're going to give said events. Uh, there's a great... Uh, <laughs> There's a great, I believe it's it's a Chinese story about a farmer uh, whose horse runs away, his prize horse, this beautiful stallion runs away and the neighbors are like, oh, dude, uh, we're so sorry. That sucks. That's, that's terrible news. I mean, how are you ever going to get the money to buy a horse like that again? Oh, that that's, oh, we, we don't know what to say. We're sorry. And the guy goes, bad news, good news? I don't know. And a week later, that horse comes back leading 50 wild horses, runs them all right back into the field of this Chinese farmer. Now he's he's got the stallion back plus 50. And the neighbors are like, oh my God, you are the luckiest guy on the planet. And the farmer says, eh, lucky, unlucky, who knows? Well, his son goes out to uh, picks one of the most beautiful horses, decides going to break that horse and saddle that horse, ride that horse around. Everybody will see this beautiful horse, want to buy the horse, right? And that's going to put money into our family's coffers. So the son goes out to break the horse and the horse throws the son. And the son lands hard on the ground, breaks his arm, breaks his shoulder. And the neighbors go, oh my God, he could have been killed. What terrible luck. Just he's broken horses before. And now he, look at him. He's, oh, that arm, who knows how long it's going to take to heal. That's terrible. And the farmer goes, good luck, bad luck, who knows? Hmm. The next day, the Chinese, uh, a local warlord comes through looking for conscripts, forcing people to give up their sons to go to war. That boy's got a broken arm and a broken shoulder, hmm. and he doesn't get picked. He stays home, does not go to this war where the warlord's army gets wiped out. So again, bad luck, good luck, who knows? The story goes on and on and on. But you get, you get the point. So during COVID, it was a great opportunity for me to practice being at peace with things I cannot control. You know, I can't control what's going on with my children's school. I can be involved, but I can't control if they're in the classroom, out of the classroom. Uh, friends who are making what I thought were poor decisions uh, about their health uh, and uh, putting things into the matrix that weren't health related, that were politically related. And, you know, I, my wife's a doctor, she was a medical researcher, all this kind of stuff. So I look at things maybe different than the average bear does. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, those were their decisions to make. And that's what's great about our country is we we are we are Americans collectively, but we are a collection of individuals and we are wired to do what's best for ourselves and our families. And we have the freedom to do that in this country. So, you know, I couldn't go on book tour. There weren't people walking through the airport bookstores, buying Brad Thor books. There's a lot of stuff I had no control over. So it was the perfect time to practice stoicism. And I've become a good fit, a uh, good, uh, I shouldn't say good friend. I know Ryan and I'm a huge fan of his, but Ryan Holiday has been very successful with his books on stoicism. And Ryan wrote a book called The Obstacle is the Way. And that's back to what you were saying about Joseph Campbell. And I was saying about uh, that which we're most destined to do, we're often most afraid of. And the obstacle is the way is that thing that's kind of blocking you that's in front of you is actually there not to stop you, but to guide you. Mm -hmm. And if you can learn from the thing that is blocking you, that's going to take you where you need to be. And so stoicism, this, this ability to just kind of be at peace with the way things are. And we were talking about stoicism in the beginning, of course, with on your deathbed and all that kind of stuff. And me now practicing kind of daily, 
you know, did, did this was the last day of my life. Did I do a good job? And then waking up tomorrow saying, okay, wow, I got a bonus day. I got a bonus day. This may be the last day. How do I make the most of it? Yeah. Am I like a monk? Do I have it forefront in my mind every single? No, I don't. It's tough. It's tough. There's a, there's a great thing uh, in stoicism. Uh, and I forget who said it, but it's don't talk about what a great man should be. Be a great man. Hmm. Be one. Um, you know, one of the most fascinating things I love about General Mattis is that he took uh, Marcus Aurelius with him when he went to to war. He took a book uh, of, of stoicism. I mean, here is a, a massive guy in the Roman Empire and he was working on self-improvement and not being attached to things and blah, blah, blah. Doesn't mean I don't like nice things. I love nice things. Um, but keeping keeping life in perspective is is kind of a cool thing and realizing we have a lot more control over our lives than we think. And you start practicing stoicism and you realize how you're getting manipulated just kind of out in the big world, whether it's marketing, whether it's, you know, websites and news programs that want to keep you angry because they've realized that that vitriol is what keeps you coming back. It rings their cast register if you're pissed off all the time. So it's, it, it's, it's, it, it's very empowering when you realize that you can choose to surrender the quality of your life to someone else and let them dictate what kind of an experience you're going to have. Or if you say, wait, this is crazy. I'm in control of what kind of an experience I have, whether that's with my family, my spouse, my coworkers, my customers, whatever that is, you, you have a tremendous amount of control. And that brings with it a very healthy sense of sense of peace and a sense of calm. Hmm. Speaking about control in, in the beginning, you can control the book you write and, and certain things in terms of like you were saying, selling. But it still took you five years to get on the New York Times bestseller, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering for you, what's going on during those first couple of years? You, you know you're good. You're, you're getting some rewards, some accolades, things like that. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I think so many people see you today, 23 books, super successful. And it's just like what it took to get there. I just want to rewind a little bit prior to those New York Times bestsellers. You know, I mean, I hit... I hit with the first one, some regional bestseller lists, mm -hmm. uh, different places across the country. Uh, it, it was always moving forward, right? It was always, if you just keep moving one foot in front of another. And I would go, you know, I had book events where not my current publicist, because David Brown, who I dedicated the most recent book to, is just fabulous. It was an earlier publicist uh, that I had. And I ended up in... Texas of all places. And it was a major, there was a major sporting event on TV last night and there was nobody at the book signing. It was just me. But I said, okay, lemons, how do I make lemonade out of this? Right? So I decided I'm scheduled to be in the store for an hour, hour and a half. I'm going to go around and meet every single salesperson who's on duty tonight in this store. And I'm going to talk to them and I'm going to say, Hey, I'm a new author. What kind of books do you like to read? And I learn a little bit about them. And I'd say, okay, if a customer comes in and is looking for a type of book that you like, how do you guide them? Okay, so with me doing thrillers, let me tell you what my book is about. This is stuff, and here's beyond what you would see on the flap cup copy. Let me tell you how I got the idea, da, 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 da. So I did that with every person in the store. And I know that these people helped hand sell my book starting the next day with customers. Customers came in, I'm looking for something new, something kind of cool, maybe a new author. And they're like, oh, we had this guy here last night. And let me tell you, it's so cool. He actually lived in Park City, Utah, and the president had come to ski twice there. And this is what he saw. And this is how he got inspired to write this book. So I could have been upset. You know, I think it's crazy when a performer, like a musician, will walk out on stage and be angry that not all the seats are filled. 
It's like, don't focus on the empty seats, focus on the full seats. Mm -hmm. Those people came and whether you get a hundred people or a thousand people or 10 people, those people who showed up for you deserve your full performance, deserve that full thank you. So that was always my attitude. I was always grateful. I still remain grateful. I don't take anything for granted. I'm grateful for doing your, your, your podcast, your show. And I'm grateful for all the media opportunities I get. It's, it's, it is, it is hard to keep pushing, but particularly in an industry like mine, where you have, I don't consider people competitors. I consider them colleagues because you have 365 days a year and you can read, you know, lots of books in that year. But it's like last night, the, the New York Times, as we're taping this, the New York Times list came out last night. Okay. And so, you know, we're wondering where are we going to hit the list? Where are we going to hit on the list? Because there's two categories when you come out in hardcover. Uh, you've got the actual hardcover list, and then you've got a list which is hardcover plus ebooks. They add them, add them together. You know, and I, sometimes I'll be number one, sometimes I'll be number two. Well, I was number three last night, and I'm thrilled to be number three. I'm thrilled. The competition this year was so tough. So in hardcover, number three, because there's a book that has just been sitting on the list forever that's got a huge, huge following. Uh, and then there's this other book, uh, which so there's a fantasy book that's number one. There's a sci-fi book that's number two. And I'm number three. That's great. And on the combined list, I'm number two. So I beat out the sci-fi book. I came in between the fantasy and the sci-fi book on, on, the, um, on the combined list. So, you know, it's me, Daniel Silva, and uh, James Patterson. We're the, on a 15-book list, we're the only three, you know, thriller authors on this list. Everything else is kind of a mix of, you know, girl on the train sort of a thing and the fantasy and the sci-fi. So I'm thrilled to be there. I'm blessed to be there. Had you come to me when I was a writing student, a creative writing student at the University of Southern California and said, hey, on your 23rd book, you'd still be crushing it, landing in the top three of the New York Times list. Uh, would you be okay, book 23, if you weren't number one? It's like, how can I argue with this? And we're selling more books than we have the last two years. So as a business person, units out the door, we're selling more books than ever. I've been successful in bringing in new readers and people want to buy my book the first week out. So yeah, it's competitive, but it, it's all relative, right? There's I, And if people are reading, isn't that great? It's fabulous that people are reading sci-fi and fantasy. I love readers. What would scare me is if nobody was reading. Mm -hmm. So if I'm number three on the list because there's a whole bunch of fantasy and sci-fi readers out there, that's great. That's great. Seeing other human beings reading books makes people want to read books. Doesn't mean they'll read the same books. It's just, it's all good. And again, back to my mom, right, Sean? It's, you can't always control the situation you find yourself in, but you can control how you're going to react to it. Hmm. Well, speaking of that, with Deadfall, when you see that book on the bookshelf, what does that feel like now, book number 23, compared to book one? Awesome. It's awesome. Uh, so I'll tell you this, writing book number one and finishing that first draft, okay, felt incredible uh, because I had successfully beaten back all my fears. Mm -hmm. I had committed to my wife that I was going to do it. I did it. And I knew I would never go to my deathbed wondering how might my life have been different had I only had the courage to write that first book. So I think writing that first book feels the way that completing your first marathon, climbing your first mountain, I think those are always gonna be really cool experiences. You're always gonna remember that first one. Um, finishing a book feels fabulous every time. I mean, just <laughs> to know you've completed that project and you've worked to the best of your ability, that feels great. 
seeing it in the stores is always awesome. Mm -hmm. Seeing the stores is great. One of the coolest things for me is I have two kids when they see it in the stores mm -hmm. and they take a picture and say, hey, I'm here. And they, they send me the picture and all that kind of stuff or their friends see it and send it to them. That for me is really neat as a father because I've, I'm showing my children every year. Uh, there was a great uh, reviewer I once had that said uh, to his readers, he said, I don't think you understand what Brad Thor does. He said, Brad Thor climbs Everest every year, but via a different face. Hmm. And I was like, this guy really gets it. He's like, he's talking about how the technical challenges are going to be different because every face is different. The wind hits it different. You've got to have a different technique for climbing it. But every year he climbs that mountain just a different way up the mountain. And I was like, wow, this guy really, really does get it. Um, so seeing it in the stores is is just, it's fantastic. It's its the best feeling because that, that there's nothing I can do now. The book is in the wild, right? So it's out there. It has to, I, it, when I get questions from readers, they're like, why'd you do this? Why'd you do that? I, I'm like, that's what the muse told me to do. Mm -hmm. I don't argue with the muse. And I don't get into deep discussions because the book's got to stand on its own, you know, unless it's kind of a, if it's a, why did you decide to spin the plot this way or whatever? I mean, I do talk about my process a lot, but there, you know, you put that book out there and it's like having kids that graduate and you're like, okay, got that college education. All right. I'm always going to be here to chat, but I want to see you succeed. Go do it. Hopefully I, hopefully I poured everything from me into you that I was capable of pouring in there and, and you're good. So yeah, it's a thrill, thrill. Even even to this day, to, I, I flew home yesterday from New York City and I, I went looking for it. I go into every bookstore I pass in the airport to make sure it's there and there it was. And, you know, it's it's fun. And it's also fun to see how it's displayed. And then I'll linger a little bit, Sean. Hmm. I'll kind of linger and watch, you know, does anybody pick it up? What it is? And I'll do, some, I'll do some research on the spot. I'll be like, oh, hey, I saw you pick up that book. That looked like a good book to you. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I didn't like the cover or yeah, yeah, it's kind of funny. I actually have this book by this guy. I bought his paperback and I want to read that first before this. I'm like, oh, have you read a lot of his books? I can stand there. And I eventually <laughs> fess up, you know what I mean? Like if it's somebody who's read me before, I'll fess up. But if it's not, if it's a complete stranger, it's kind of fun to do that in the field polling or market research. It's, that's cool. I like that. Yeah. One of the things that I've always enjoyed from book one is you're gripping me for each chapter, right? Like I'm excited to get to that next phase. I don't know what's happening. I'm being pulled there. But at the same time, because you dive so deep in your research process where you're able to pull really interesting things, but not, not in a drawn out, boring way like some other authors do. And the way you toggle between those two, I think is just exceptional. And it's, it's cool to see that, that longevity, 23 books, still able to do that. I see it over your shoulder, the book Deadfall. Talk to me about yeah. it. So um, as we chatted about earlier, I grew up reading, well, I, I told you about the movies, the World War II things that I love. So Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers, the TV series, uh, Monuments Men I thought was terrific, uh, Fury with Brad Pitt. So I love those contemporary accounts of World War II. Growing up, I read a fabulous author named Alistair McLean, and he wrote a great book called Where Eagles Dare. And they made a fabulous movie. If you want to cheat and skip to the end and watch the movie, Sean, it's, uh, it's Clint Eastwood, Richard Burton. It's very, very cool. Uh, there's going to be this secret OSS operation. So they're combing through the American military looking for people who spoke German growing up. Well, it's funny because... We still do that. In fact, during the Cold War, the uh, the U.S. military went through the Ranger battalions looking for people who spoke German and set up the secret uh, unit in Berlin. 
And they were all hidden in Berlin in case the Soviets ever overran the wall and flooded into Berlin. These guys were there. They had their weapons and stuff plastered up behind walls and sunk in some submersible capsules in uh, lakes and different parks around Berlin. And their job was, is if the Soviets ever came over the wall, was to create guerrilla warfare, blow up bridges, slow them down. I mean, that happened in the 80s. And I did my third book, uh, State of the Union, all about this unit because I knew one of the guys who'd been in the unit, so blah, 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 blah. So with Deadfall, it gave me a chance. Scott Harveth is America's top spy. He's a former Navy SEAL, but he lives now in the present day. So I can't put him in a DeLorean and send him back to World War II, but I always wanted to drop him into one of these you know, Band of Brothers, Saving Private Ryan kind of thing. So when the war in Ukraine kicked off, I said, all right, this is the opportunity. This is potentially, and when the Ukrainians were able to repel the Russians getting Kiev, I was like, okay, Kiev. I was like, all right, good. I'm going to be able to do this. So my, my thing with this book was I wanted that as the backdrop. And I've written about the Wagner mercenary group in several of my thrillers, the Russian mercenary group. And as I was starting to put together the idea for Deadfall about an American citizen who goes missing behind enemy lines during the during the battle, and uh, the Wagner Group in real life started recruiting from prisons and insane asylums, I went, wait a second, the Nazis did the same thing. So there was this horrific Nazi SS unit that was getting insane people and the worst of the worst prisoners, and the guy that ran it was a horrific monster. I mean. Even his fellow Nazis hated him. So think of how bad a human being you've got to be that even the Nazis are like, oh, we don't want anything to do with this guy. And Hitler sent, set him loose on Poland from August of 1944 until October. And this guy and his unit created some of the, or perpetrated some of the most horrific war crimes of World War II to happen outside the concentration camps. So when the Wagner group was starting to do the same stuff uh, in real life, I said, okay, that's what I'm going to do. So my missing American, these guys, this this unit that's gone rogue off of uh, off of Wagner, they're going to be the guys that took her. Harvath is going to get sent in. America's not committing troops. So he has to go in as an individual, join the Ukrainian International Legion. The Ukrainians can't give him a lot of support. He's allowed to peel off three or four guys from the International Legion. And now they have to hunt these really, really bad guys and find this American. And his job is bring her back and kill everybody responsible for the war crimes and the atrocities that this horrific unit that nobody can stop has been committing across Ukraine. It's to take them out off the playing field. And that's the concept for the book. So essentially, so for me, this war could have pretty much happened anywhere. You know, it was pretty, with all of the war crimes that were really happening in real life, it was easy, black hat, white hat, bad guys, good guys. It was pretty easy for me to figure stuff out, but it was more the setting that I was looking for, to be able to kind of reinvent a World War II setting and kind of scenario. And what Harvet deals with is limited amounts of equipment. I mean, it's very World War II, even down to the equipment that he's being handed to use. It's not all World War II equipment, but it's really limited and he can't get resupplied and you're going through crumbled village after crumbled village. So it really does have that flavor. And again, you know, I took a flyer with this. I took a really big risk because this is something that I had a lot of passion and wanted to do. But the hard thing about my stuff is I don't know, is it good? Is it bad? That's an interpretation. But how are my bosses, my readers going to like it? I don't know till I put the book in their hands. So there's a certain amount of angst, hmm. if you will, before it gets out there. But 
just the response has been fantastic with, again, people saying it's their favorite book. They think it's the best thing I've ever written. And that to me is worth its weight in gold, particularly, you know, for the 23rd book of my career. It's nice to know that my bosses, those readers appreciate all the hard work that I put in, um, you know, during the year. Yeah. The, the listeners know how obsessed I am with reading how many books I read, most of them nonfiction. You are one of the very few that sit there. I sit there every single year and I am hooked to and gripped to. So I, re I really can't recommend your book enough. Also, all the previous, the 23 in total. Thank you. Absolutely exceptional. You said taking risks. There's this line by Estee Lauder yeah, that I love. Risk taking mm -hmm. is the cornerstone of empires. And so I just love the approach oh, that, that you took there, taking that's a, a risk. a great line. Final one here, Brad. Yeah. You could do this long form interview, sit down with anyone dead or alive. Who would you love to interview? It's a great question. And it's funny. I even asked this question two times this summer. And it's really, really interesting. It, it probably is the coolest question I've been asked. And I do not mind that you just asked the question because I think it's really interesting. So, you know, it, the first time I got asked this question, I was like, uh, you know, it's like so many people, right, that you'd love to sit down with. And I, I said, living or dead, I said, I would have to choose. And it's not for religious purposes. This is not a religious choice. But if I was going to sit down and talk to somebody, I would want to sit down and talk with the most impactful person in the history of the world. So yeah, would it be cool to meet Marcus Aurelius? Yeah, if you give me a dinner table with like 15 people, I'm putting Marcus Aurelius there, I'm putting Churchill there. I have to tell you though, from a purely historical, uh, world-changing uh, position, I would have to sit down and talk to Christ. Mm. I think that would be interesting. And that's not, that's not religious. It's, it's a purely historical, this is a person who, Without Christ, I don't know that you get Western civilization to the level that you get it and all this kind of stuff. There's so much that I don't know we would have been able to achieve uh, in the West without Christianity. I mean, in the impact it had on Rome and how much it changed things and, and how it was used to drive civilization in the betterment of mankind. So for me, as someone who loves history, how could I not want to go back and talk to the figure who had the biggest impact on history. There's nobody bigger. There's nobody. I, 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 I've challenged myself to think. I can't think of a single person, not a Roman emperor, nobody who had as much impact because the ripples were felt. I like to joke around, not joke around, but I say to people, it's not, a, actually, it's not joking around. I, I like to make conversation about the founding of America and how the United States was founded and had a lot less uh, manpower and a lot less natural resources than the Roman Empire had access to. And you look at how long Rome lasted, but what did they invent? You take any 200 year period in Roman history, it's not massive jumps in technology, and but what the founders did in the United States with empowering the individual and in freeing individual creativity. It had never been done in history, never. And look what we did with less than the Romans in 200 years. In, two, in 200 years, we did more than they did their entire lifespan. I mean, or the, the entire span of the Roman Republic through the Roman Empire. So that also ties back to the impact that Christianity had on the West, how this belief, and there's a tremendous amount of stoicism, by the way, in Christianity. I mean, turn the other cheek and all this kind of stuff. So without Christianity, you would not have had the enlightenment, okay? And without the enlightenment, you would not have had the thinking of the founding fathers that led to the founding documents, which led to the greatest unleashing 
of individualism and creativity in the history of the world. So that, you know, there's a chain there. It all, it all connects. So but that's my long answer to your short question. No, Brad, you know the impact you've had on me. I, I just want to thank you again, taking risks on yourself, fully betting on yourself, going after the things you're passionate about continuing the longevity, the pursuit of excellence, all those things, man. I just can't thank you enough. It's always a pleasure. Once again, the book is Deadfall. It is out now. Brad Thor, thanks again. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There? I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.